Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. On the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben DiBiase, filling in for Ben Broatmarkle. Coming up on the program, 240-year-old artifacts from the British period in Florida come home to the Florida Historical Society's archive. These things made it through two world wars and 250 years almost now of history. So yeah, obviously we, we want to treat them with kid gloves pretty much. We'll sit down with author Roy Laughlin to talk about the Rockledge Resort District in East Central Florida during the late 19th century. By 1886, hotels were filled to capacity and Rockledge began to grow. And we'll learn about early pottery in Florida with archeologist Zach Gilmore. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. And look at what this is. Is that ruins? Ruins of? Ruins of, uh, there's an S. It must be a ship. Are there any forts? There are no Spanish forts in no, this St. Joseph's Bay. Well, now, okay, now, oh, you know what, though? You might be right then, because it's right next to the anchor. So they are probably, they're marking, they're marking a shipwreck, I bet. That's Dr. James Cusick curator at the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida, poring over minute details from a 1780 hand-engraved copper map plate of Pensacola Harbor. The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, and during that time they worked to develop Florida into a successful colony. Yet by the time the Revolutionary War broke out in the 1770s, that dream was finished. In the midst of this conflict, the Royal Navy commissioned an atlas depicting their colonial possessions in North America. That process involved the carving of large copper plates that would then be inked and printed to make a paper map. When looking at these copper plates, the first thing you notice is the incredible detail in the carvings. It quickly becomes apparent that a lot of human hours went into the production of just a single sheet. A lot of it had to be freehand because the typography, the, you know, the text is in curves, so they couldn't have just made a straight line and written across it like they did in some of the title keys. They may have been able to put some sort of curving guide down on the copper just so that they, they knew base, and, and then I assume that they would have traced out, maybe using graphite, maybe something like a pencil, the lettering, and then, but then they would have to actually engrave it. And you know, it's interesting if you look, so this would have said, this says, you know, Pensacola Harbor right here, if we read it backwards. But you can see all the lighter parts of the copper in there. Some of that's probably just discoloration, but some of it looks like it may actually be a little bit of burnishing or something just to, just to try and remove stray marks that were made when they were doing the engraving. This was, of course, only the beginning of the process. As Dr. Cusick explains, to create a print involved several more steps. The way they would prepare the plate is that they would set it into a press, and then they would ink it. And 
the ink that they used was somewhat viscous and thick and sticky. And they would have to use soft cloths and buffers to you know, rub that ink down into the indentations, the areas that are engraved, to make sure that it got down into all of them. Then when they did that, the whole thing would have been very messy with ink. And so then they had to come back with clean cloths and wipe off the ink until they got it off, for instance, all the places that represented water because they were gonna to have to come out white. And so you didn't want to have ink on them because they would be stained or they would be mottled or they wouldn't look right. So, so you would press the ink down into the areas where you wanted it to, you know, to register. And then you would, you would have to you know, buff and clean up the plate so that you know, these areas that look mirror-like because they're so smooth, those would all have to be clean. Having done that, then you would lay a piece of paper across to the top of the plate, and then you would have to close the press to bring down great pressure. And what they were essentially doing in this case was that they were pressing the paper down so hard onto the plate that it was pressing down into the indentations and low areas where the ink was to lift it off. The final publication was called The Atlantic Neptune. It was commissioned by the British Admiralty, and the etchings were completed by J.F.W. de Beers between the years 1774 and 1780. What we're looking at is what survived from the 18th century. And these plates, along with other plates for the United States and quite a few plates for Canada, made it up until World War II. And it was actually, I think, an archivist with the British Admiralty and possibly with the Maritime Museum who located these during World War II while the war was still ongoing. And of course they were copper and very valuable as metal and possibly candidates for being melted down. And the archivist, you know, reviewed them and said they're too valuable as historic objects for us to destroy them, even, even you know, for the war effort. So the British government decided that these rare and historically valuable artifacts should be presented to the United States and Canada as a gift for their support during the Second World War. More than half of the plates that survived um, were of Canada and went to and were presented to the government in Ottawa. And then for the um, plates of the former British colonies, they uh, sent them to Washington and then they divided them up based on which state they represented, and then uh, those were presented to those states. This was done after the war. There was actually talk about doing it while the war was, was on, but it was too complex, and they were actually afraid to attempt to ship the things across the Atlantic um, because of the German U-boat attacks. So they waited until after the war, and I think in 1947, the British consul here in Florida made a presentation to the Florida Historical Society when you were headquartered in St. Augustine. And that was covered in the St. Augustine record and I think also in the Times Union. And there was a formal presentation of these five plates to the Historical Society. But a decade later, the Florida Historical Society had moved its archive to the University of Florida. Soon after that, the society moved again to Tampa on the campus of the University of South Florida. I've looked back through those records, and it apparently was a, uh, a very difficult move 
the society sent its representatives down to Tampa to get things ready. And then there were other society members and Julian Young, the curator of the PK Young, were keeping an eye on things up here, you know, to get everything ready for transport. And then right in the middle of it, Julian Young became ill and he died. And so there was suddenly no head to the PK Young Library and the uh, officers of the Florida Historical Society were split between here and Tampa. And so it appears the only thing I can think of is that these got overlooked. They were probably kept down in our vault, which we still have our walk-in vault downstairs. Given how heavy they are, they were probably on a low shelf because we've always kept them on a low shelf. And I just think in, you know, in the efforts to get you know, all the book collection and everything else that was here shipped down to, um, to South Florida, these things were lying there. You know, Julian probably would have known and pointed out that they were things that were supposed to go, but he was gone. I don't even know who was in charge of the library in his stead at that point. And so they remained here. Like many archival materials, they sat for several years, untouched, seemingly unnoticed, awaiting their second discovery on the shelves of the P.K. Young Library of Florida History in Gainesville. When I came in 1998, uh, they had become kind of an urban legend. And uh, about the second week I was curator, as they were showing me different parts of the collections, I remember Bruce Chapel said, well, have you seen the copper plates? And I said, I know we had any copper plates. And so, you know, we pulled one out and we looked at it. And I said, well, this is amazing. What's the story in this? And he said, well, apparently it was a gift of the British government after the Second World War. And <laughs> that was it. That was the information that I had on these things. And, uh, and I didn't think anything about it, you know, because you know, I, I hate to say it, but there's an awful lot of things here and probably in the Florida Historical Society Library, too where we don't have a lot of documentation or written record about how we got the things. A lot of it was passed on word of mouth, basically, and, and you know how reliable that is, right? Dr. Cusick later did a write-up on the history of the plates for a display at the Tampa Bay History Center. He stumbled upon an interesting fact about their actual owners. And at the end of the article, it said, in the Florida plates were presented to the Florida Historical Society. And I was like, what? <laughs> then what are they doing here? You know, and I was like, did the society loan them to us? Did they give them to us? And so I went back through the correspondence. I found Julian's correspondence where he had written to the Admiralty and said that uh, he was aware that this presentation was going to be made to the Florida Historical Society. And was it possible to get prints made off the maps. He was interested to see whether it was possible to make prints. And so there I had it confirmed, too, that it was that they had been given to the society. And then I went back into the St. Augustine record and found the actual newspaper account. And of course, I was on the board of the Florida Historical Society at that time, and I may have been incoming president. I can't remember if I was or not. So I called up Ben Brotmarkle, the executive director, and said, Ben, I have something I need to talk to you about, and that's uh, that's when we, you know, we basically made decisions about, uh, you know, whether the we could go ahead with the loan of the plates and what the disposition of the plates should be. What's remarkable about this story is the fact that so many of the roughly 250 copper plates used to make the Atlantic Neptune survived into the 20th century. I think out of the originals, it's maybe 25 to 33 percent of the original plates survived to the 20th century. The others had all been reused, melted down, sold for scrap, 
Uh, it's kind of like the Civil War story, you know, of the of the glass plate uh, negatives for you know Civil War, which after the Civil War is over, you know, was were sold as panes of glass for people to put in their greenhouses and things like that. You know, it was a technology that at the time seemed to have served its purpose, and so people weren't thinking of these. They weren't thinking of this stuff as museum pieces. These were all working pieces of technology, basically. But it is, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice that of the ones that did survive, it's the two colonial cities, basically, and the two colonial capitals, too. Now, we don't have St. Augustine, because the St. Augustine plate was a double plate, and we only have half of it. There's prints of it. I'd be thrilled to find out that's, you know, somewhere buried in Britain somewhere, the, the other half of that plate existed. It'd be great. But we do have Pensacola represented, and we have St. Augustine represented. The copper plates were moved several times during the 20th century, even crossing the Atlantic. But in the early 19th century, they were packed up and shipped to Newfoundland, where J.F.W. de Beers had become governor. They were then shipped back across the pond to England and deposited with the Royal Navy. These things made it through two world wars and 250 years almost now of history. So yeah, obviously we, we want to treat them with kid gloves, pretty much. These things survived the London Blitz. So yeah, there's like an incredible, there's an incredible heritage to them. Okay, and then what I would do is I'd run all the way up, or at least up to there. And then yeah, because we have to fold it. In October 2019, we traveled to Gainesville and the campus of the University of Florida to pick up the copper map plates and bring them back to Coco. We carefully wrapped the copper plates, each weighing approximately 15 pounds, and fastened them into our vehicle. The plates will first be on display at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco, and will then be permanently housed at the Florida Historical Society Archives in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben DiBiase. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Roy Laughlin, author of the new book, Rockledge Resort District, Winter's Eden on Florida's Late 19th Century Frontier. Roy, what would Florida's east central coast have looked like to a visitor in, say, 1890? The entire coast might not have looked that inviting, but Rockledge from 1879 until 1886 or 87 was at the connection between the St. John's River steamboat routes and navigation routes on the Indian River. The transportation was slow, not always reliable, and people often needed to stay and wait at one end or the other 
of those roots to catch the connection. As early as 1880, there were two guest houses that were established in Rockledge that later grew within a few years to become real hotels. In 1884 and 85, they were firmly established as both hotels for the local traveler as well as winter resort hotels for the tourists who came to Florida to stay a few months to escape northern winters. Those visitors were primarily of two kinds. They were invalids and people looking for climate cures for disease, and in the early 1880s, they were the adventure sportsmen, the people who came down here for hunting and fishing, lived the life on the Florida frontier. They might also have wanted to get away from the winters up north, but they didn't come down here and sit on a veranda. They were out living the active lifestyle. By 1886, hotels were filled to capacity and Rockledge began to grow. It added hotels. By 1890, there were three large riverfront winter resort hotels, as well as two guest house on a side street, which is today Barton Avenue. Now, you mentioned in the preface that a nonfiction book makes a writer a curator before becoming a creator. What did the primary sources, many of which came from the FHS archive, play in your narrative construction? For a writer who's not affiliated with academic institution, for example, this area here is one of the best ones to try and write a historical book of this sort. We have Florida Historical Society Library, and there were certainly several important um, finds in that library, uh, Health Resorts of the South, Summer Resorts of New England. In that book, it gave the largest single amount of space to the Rockledge Winter Resorts. It was a very important book in focusing my attention on how significant this area was at that time. In addition, the Brevard County Historical Commission has its archives not two blocks away in one of the county library branches, and they have a well-qualified and experienced archivist there as well to help find materials. One of those, for example, that I think is really a find is the memoirs of A.L. Hatch, he was one of the two men who found the Rockledge Landing off Lake Poinsett and opened the connection between the St. John's River navigation routes and Rockledge. It's a really a remarkable memoir of a man's life, including his settlement here in Florida. In addition, we have the Mosquito Beaters, a local organization that's collected photographs, memoirs, as well as objects that go back at least 130 years in this area's pioneer settlement. But in addition, the Florida archives are at the University of Florida Gainesville. Florida Memory is available online. The holdings, especially photographs of the Library of Congress, are available online. So between the internet and three unique institutions within a few miles of here, I feel like I had the best opportunity of anyone to pull together an enormous amount of material within one lifetime to write this book. Now, Roy, you end the book in the early 20th century. So what was it that ultimately ended the Rockledge Resort District? There were a variety of factors, but primarily it had to do with, first of all, inflation that came as a result of World War I that made it economically infeasible even for wealthy industrialists 
to own those hotels and keep them operating. In addition, the type of client that went to those hotels and wanted to stay for weeks or even months in residence aged out. Those people were no longer around. They aged out, they died. And the younger tourists that uh, started coming at the beginning of the Florida land boom wanted to travel around by car or by train, stay a few days in one place, and move on. All of Florida was open by 1920. The frontier era had ended in 1880. This was the gateway to the Florida frontier, and there really wasn't the tourism opportunities further south. This was the furthest south large hotel district in the peninsula on the east coast. There were some other local factors. The resort district was open only three months out of the year by 1920. In fact, the railroad station closed in Rockledge during the non-resort period months, people who wanted to catch the train had to stay in the hotels in Coco. Another hotel called the Plaza Hotel was raised in 1920 because the orange grove behind it was more valuable than the hotel on the riverfront. So uh, the owner at the time sold it to her brother-in-law, E.P. Porche. He continued the grove, and ultimately it turned out that Nobody really wanted to buy the riverfront land for homes. So in 1924, one single hotel, the new hotel, Indian River, replaced all the others in the resort district. The resort district, as was there on the Florida frontier, ended in 1920-22. Well, great, Roy. Thank you so much. Roy Laughlin is author of the new book, Rockledge Resort District, Winter's Eden on Florida's Late 19th Century Frontier. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida is home to some of the earliest examples of pottery in North America. Holly Baker spoke with archaeologist Zach Gilmore about these artifacts. Some of the oldest pottery found in North America was discovered in northeast Florida at coastal and freshwater shell midden sites used by hunter-gatherer communities thousands of years ago. Dr. Zach Gilmore is an assistant professor of anthropology and the archaeology program coordinator at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. He's also the author of Gathering at Silver Glen, Community and History in Late Archaic Florida. He told me about early pottery found along the St. John's River that was left behind by indigenous people in Florida more than 4,000 years ago. Florida is home to one of the earliest pottery technologies anywhere in North America. The earliest examples we see in the archaeological record go all the way back to around 4,500 years ago. Pottery was actually invented, at least among North American Indians, in the coastal plain region of, of Georgia and South Carolina, right around the Savannah River at around 5,000 years ago. But because there was already a lot of interaction, a lot of trade between these two regions, within a few hundred years, that technology, or at least knowledge of it, had spread down south into Florida, where it was first made by people along the St. John's River and the, the northern coast of, of the state. 
based on radiocarbon dates, we know that the earliest pottery vessels weren't used in everyday cooking kinds of contexts. Um, they were instead used in, in feasts and other ceremonies conducted at, at large-scale uh, shell mound sites. Um, and many of these earliest vessels were unusually large and uh, ornately decorated, hinting at their use in, in larger-scale, more socially diverse gatherings. As Dr. Gilmore explains, pottery found along the St. John's River, known as orange pottery, predates the arrival of agriculture by several thousand years. The oldest pottery in Florida is called orange pottery, um, not because of its color, but because it was first formally described and, and defined at a site called Orange Mound. The really early pottery is easy to recognize um, because it was tempered with Spanish moss, and so the Indians who made it actually mixed Spanish moss into the wet clay, and then when the vessel was formed and fired, most of that moss would burn out, and so you're left with a really light, porous, ceramic vessel, and then it has a lot of hollow vesicles running through it where the, the, the moss would have burned out. So archaeologically, it's really easy uh, to distinguish. The Spanish moss fibers found in orange pottery can help archaeologists determine the age of the pottery through radiocarbon dating. One interesting thing about the um, orange pottery, the Spanish moss that is used to temper it, sometimes it doesn't completely burn out, and so there are little charred sections of moss that are still preserved in the, the fabric of the pot. And you can actually extract that and use that to directly radiocarbon date the pot. Generally, pottery is hard to date directly because it's all inorganic. But with this early pottery, it has an organic temper, and so you can actually use that to get a precise date and, and figure out when the pot was made. Pottery found at Silver Glen, a large shell mound complex in Ocala National Forest, reveals that the vessels played an important role in ritual feasting events and long-distance exchange networks. Silver Glen is a shell mound complex, and it sits on the boundary between Lake and Marion counties, and it contained two of the largest orange period shell mounds that existed in Florida. Both of those mounds are mostly, have mostly been destroyed, unfortunately, but their footprints still exist, and so we've been able to gather a lot of information we were able to compare the composition of the orange pottery we were finding to clay samples from around Florida. And based on the, the minerals and chemicals we were finding, we were able to trace pots found at Silver Glen to sites as far away as, as southwest Florida, uh, 200 kilometers away. And so it was clearly a site where at least pottery vessels were being gathered and probably people from, from across that large region as well. So it may have been a gathering point for people across peninsular Florida. The people of Silver Glen often hosted large gatherings that created a sense of community among culturally diverse indigenous groups living throughout Florida at the time. Dr. Zach Gilmore. We also have a lot of evidence that pottery played an important role in, in trade networks across Florida. Um, at the Silver Glen site in Lake County, for example, I was able to use data related to the mineralogical and chemical composition of early pots to show that many of them had been imported from hundreds of kilometers away uh, in, in southwest Florida. And so what all this shows, I think, is that the initial adoption of pottery had a, a, what might be termed a revolutionary impact on the indigenous societies of Florida, just not in the way that, that archaeologists had long assumed. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, 
You can check us out anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for this week's program comes from Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben DiBiase, filling in for Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.